0: Welcome to the Motormouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. Do you work for or run a business? You can now raise awareness and funds for urgent change by joining the Brain Tumor Charity's brand new campaign, Businesses Against Brain Tumors. By declaring yourself a business against brain tumors and taking on your very own brain power challenge, you can raise funds for vital medical research while improving your your own brain health at the same time. People have shaped our world and facilitated amazing amounts of progress through business. Organisations are connecting people every day, innovating in the face of challenges like the pandemic and creating products that make up our culture. Now is the time to take that power and put it into good by beating brain tumours. And we all know there's power in numbers. Brain tumours are still the biggest cancer killer of children and adults under 40, with treatments having changed very little. Since the 1980s, it's no wonder when only 3% of national cancer research funding is spent on brain tumours. So it's down to the charity and its community of amazing supporters to urgently enact change. Look for the Brain Tumor Charity on social media to find out how you, your colleagues and your business can be the difference we need to see to defeat brain tumours for good. Motormouth is proud to be officially partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, so a huge thank you for your support. If you can donate anything, you can also do that through the motormouth.club website or through the Brain Tumour Charity Direct and together we can help every single person affected by a brain tumour. It's season 9 and we're really excited to be teaming up with Rodin Cars. Based in New Zealand but with a new HQ open in Donington Park in the UK, owning the Rodin FZ gives you the keys to experience a whole new level of driving performance. A supercar like no other, giving you the chance to feel pure driving pleasure. Designed for easy maintenance, you could own the F1 lifestyle and strive for that perfect lap time with the Rodin FZ there's plenty of purchasing options including after sale partnership where your Rodin FZ is looked after on and off track by an official formula racing team storage and exclusive track access to Rodin's very own circuit in New Zealand with Rodin and the Rodin FZ you experience so much more than just owning an open wheel high performance supercar for more information on Rodin and how you can get involved visit rodin-cars.com
1: hello my name's Tim Sylvie and sadly my usual and lofty co-host Harry is on holiday today with terrible Wi-Fi so I'm flying solo but nevertheless the show must go on and today I'm joined by a man who was born in leafy Wimbledon now we all know that Wimbledon is famous for its tennis but did you know that it's the oldest tournament in the world dating back to 1877 where it was first played at Warple Road and was open to amateurs yes you and I could have had a crack at winning it. In other Wimbledon related facts there are 54,000 tennis balls used in the tournament today which are kept refrigerated to keep them looking spotless and playing perfectly but enough of my Wimbledon based facts it's time to bring in today's guest and I'm delighted to be joined by David Brabham a man from one of the most important racing dynasties in motorsport he's added over 30 years in the sport from karts to single seaters Formula One and sports cars he has a ridiculous racing CV he's a triple Le Mans 24-hour class winner, back-to-back American Le Mans Series champion. He's enjoyed two championship titles in ALMS. He's been a WEC LMP1 privateer picking up podiums, and we've not even touched on the triumphs in Japanese GT500's USA Professional Sports Car Championships, Spa 24, Daytona 24, Sebring 12 Hours, and Bathurst 1000. In recent history, he's brought the famous Brabham name back with Brabham Automotive with the astonishing BT62 machine. We're here to hear about his life career, thoughts and opinions. David Brabham, welcome
2: to the uh, Good morning, Tim. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? I'm good. That's quite an intro, thank you. Well, got- I, I sit there and I go, wow, did I do all that? I know, it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it,
1: it's, it's probably the most impressive racing CV we've had. Um, but uh, where are you joining us from today? Where's, where's home these days?
2: Um, I'm just in the Bambury area, uh, so kind of in Motorsport Valley as such. Very nice. Yeah, that sort of, um, yeah, like you say,
1: Motorsport Valley, a lot of the F1 teams around there, a lot of other teams and uh, and Silverstone, not too far away. Now, uh, before we yeah. get cracking, um, I must explain that you're actually uh, kindly joining us on the 31st of March next year at our uh, celebrity charity karting event, which we're doing in partnership with Movember and the Brain Tumor Charity. And uh, if our listeners haven't found it already, there's an auction site up and running where you can actually bid on a team, Uh, to join that race and be partnered with David. So David will be in the team. Um, He's been volunteered by uh, a mutual friend of ours, David Murray-Hunley, the grumpy entrepreneur. Um, And uh, if you want to join David on track, you can do so. Head over to uh, our socials or head over to our website and you can find some information about that day and join David racing against a bunch of other pro drivers and celebrities. So uh, make sure to check that out now, um, David, we always go back to the start. Um, Let's talk about when the, uh, the the racing bug first bit you, I mean, you were born and then introduced to a car, presumably Um, your father, Sir Jack uh, has his place in F1 fame as a a driver and team owner. Take us back to your earliest memories of the sport.
2: Uh, Yeah, well, obviously you just touched on the fact that i grew up um obviously in a sort of let's call it a famous racing family and and racing was just that was the topic that's what everybody really discussed but um you know my dad retired when i was 5 went to uh, from uh england to sydney so he kind of essentially went back home and i grew up there uh up until the age of 13 and and yes my dad actually retired and then sort of went off and did touring car races a few years later so I got to see some of the racing but it really wasn't an interest as such Um, my passion at that time was was football soccer
1: okay I was just gonna say so you've moved to Australia very very young so five years old so you stayed there for a number of years presumably if England versus Australia on the cricket or
2: the rugby is on you're a Aussie fan yeah, I would say I'm more of an Aussie fan. I, I, I you know, got arrived there when I was five. I left uh, to come back to the UK when I was sort of 22. So I spent quite a lot of my, my childhood there. And, um, so, and a lot of those memories sort of really embed you in, into the country. So when it comes to sport, um, yeah, I'll, I'll support um, Australia. Um, I do support England with football as well. Um, I'll, I'm a Man United fan, but I support any English club fighting it out in Europe, you know. So I'm more of a football fan than, let's say, just one club. Yeah. I just love football, you know, just love football and, and wanted to be a footballer as a kid. Um, and I played okay. You know, we, we had a great little team and, you know, we we choked at every final. Um, <laughs> and got we, we won the first one and then we were runners-up for four years in a row and, you know, we just choked it. At at the end. Um, But it was a great period. And then I got sent off to an agricultural boarding school um, to learn about agriculture because we had a farm. So essentially I was being groomed to be a farmer. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: And um, they didn't play football. They played Aussie rules football. Uh, I I was quite sporty as a kid. So I I loved all sports, got involved in all sports, represented the school in whatever sport I I could do. Uh, whether it was running, um, athletics, you know, long, long, uh, long distance. I used to love long distance running, so uh, I did quite a bit of that. Table tennis, um, you name it, whatever, whatever I could play sport. That was my big thing, and I learned how to play Aussie rules, insane. which was great fun. Insane yeah, which score. is insane, yeah. insane game. Yeah. Uh, so my football, uh, let's say, dreams sort of that disappeared. Um, And to be frank, I I was good, but I wasn't that good. (laughs) And uh, uh, yeah, my life was sort of headed towards uh, farming. So on the farm in Australia, there was no motorsport. So I was really quite removed from from their industry as such, yeah. uh, and the conversations. So, what um, was that?
1: What was the, the thinking behind that as a family? Because obviously, your you know, you, you, you your siblings, um, your father. You know, you've got this race, this motorsport dynasty. Was it just you were sort of pushed down that route because basically someone needed to look after the farm? Yeah, I think
2: there's an element. There's two things. I think Dad wasn't that keen on all all these all boys going racing. Um, we had a farm. I showed no interest in, in racing. So it just kind of seemed a natural thing for me to go that route. It's not something I you know, woke up every day and go, great, I'm going to learn all about sheep today, yeah. you know, but it, it was just part of something I went through. I left school at 16 to work on my family farm, but also go to um, a wool class in college at the, in the nearest town. Uh, but at that point I, I also went to America for three months to watch my older brother, Jeff, race. And he was doing Indy cars for the first time in 1982. And for me, that was the first time I really kind of went, wow, this is, this is cool, this is racing. Uh, and I can remember being quite interested in, Although I wasn't mechanical like my father, I was interested in how things worked. Um, and so I'd be in the briefings with my brother I was generally helmet carrier, but I kind of liked the fact that I could sit in there and listen and 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 kind of learn, you know, learn something quite new and different. Um, and then I, I he went off to do a Can Am race because he'd won the Can Am championship the year before, and he was going to help LR Unser Jr. try and win the Can Am title. I went over with him to do a seat fitting in the frisbee that was being racing at the time, and um, saw a go kart in the in the corner. Someone was working on it. I wandered over there and on the farm, I had a go-kart with my neighbor, but it was, you know, it was like a, we built it ourselves. It had a Brixton stratton engine on it and it was just a bit of fun, you know? And then, um, on, when I was talking to the guy, I asked a a really lame question. I said, do people race go-karts? I had no idea. Absolutely no idea. People race go-karts. And I was 16, 17 years of age. So, um, i i remember the bloke turning around and asking me if i was adopted' <laughs> you know, was like you work a it fair out comment you know. yeah yeah i thought that was fair um and so i i, I kind of the bug bit me right then that was that was the moment my my path changed because i went back to australia and uh i i grabbed my neighbor and i said hey we, we should go and have a look at go-kart racing so we went off to a go-kart race meeting which was at the time the biggest race meeting of that racetrack all year. It was the New South Wales Country Titles. There were carts everywhere, castrol arse smell. You know, you're kind of hooked as soon as you got in there. Went and chatted to Dad about it. His face just went white. Yeah. He just could not, he could not believe it. Um, so I thought, well, fine, I'm not getting any help from him. So I I went to my neighbour who I went to school with and said let let's put our money together and go go karting and uh, we did we put our money together we bought a second hand go kart and off we went and were you and me- were you immediately
1: i mean you're you're starting racing at a late age i know now it's yeah. it's mad like kids start karting at 5 6 years old and spend a, a freaking yeah. fortune on it but you're you're starting what 16 17 even 18 yeah, years 17, old yeah 17 like 17 17 so so did you get in were you immediately quick did you have a natural affinity with with a go-kart even at that early stage
2: I, i i would say i did and that was mainly because on the farm having grown up driving for a very long time as a young kid driving on the farm but also I drove flat out and sideways. I should have been a rally driver if I think of all the stuff I used to get up to on the farm. But <laughs> it was a great place to, and I didn't know it at the time, where I was actually training myself. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, feeling on the dirt, you know, feeling the grip, the balance. Um, I didn't know how to race at that point because I'd never done racing. But in terms of driving fast, that never worried me. Um, and I had a natural feel for it. Yeah. So when I got in the go-kart, um, you know, that dad, dad was a bit like, okay, where'd that come from? You know, <laughs> it was a bit of a it was a bit of a surprise. And and the racing side of it, I learned a lesson very early on because I ended up uh, you know, I did a couple of heats and I was doing okay. Um and then I got I got past someone on one lap and then went to get past the other one on a long left-hand corner and the bloke went wide. I thought, well, I got the other bloke this time, last time, so I'll do, do him on the inside. And then he came back in front of me. I touched wheels with him and over I went. And I ended up, you know, I only was racing with a pair of jeans and a jumper. That was it. No race suit, no nothing, you know. Um, and my jumper came up as obviously as I'm rolling on the tarmac and, and my back was complete. all the flesh had come Jesus off the back. Christ. So I ended up in hospital, um, you know, wrapped up like a mummy and, uh, yeah, that was a very valuable lesson, yeah. uh, in, in two things really, I guess, in terms of predicting when to, to take a move and when not to, but also, um, you know, it can hurt. And also, I guess that it didn't stop me. And that was, I think dad thought that was it. I would have been, yeah, that's it. David's not going to be interested anymore. But um, I got back in the go-kart and off I went again. Please tell
1: me you bought yourself a race suit.
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, I did some racing um, and dad could see that I could drive. Um, and then he said, Well, he sat me down. He said, Well, are you serious about this? And I said, Well, yeah, I am. You know, kind of this is what I feel like I want to do. So I said, Okay, well, we'll, we'll I'll help you buy a new go kart, uh, new engine, you know, because I had secondhand stuff. So, yeah. and I was punching above my weight with what I had in a way. Um, and then got the new go kart and, uh, you know, started to win more regularly. And that's when dad, I think it was at Orange, I did a race at Orange. Um, my very first time at racing at Orange, I ended up <coughs> getting lapped. I just didn't know what I was doing. You know, um, it was wet, absolutely pouring with rain. Uh, my engine wasn't running properly. Um, it was all sorts of problems. The next time I went back to Orange, I won by half a lap. Wow! And he was there, <coughs> and he's he's and it was half drizzly, half you know, so it was tricky conditions. We we're on slicks and and that was the time where well, he told me so that was the time i went okay <clears throat> you've got something here we need to we need to see what we can do with it so it, it, that was that was when he really got behind me but i had to prove to him that I, I was serious about it, and I could actually do it. Yeah, it's it. it it's a funny
1: thing, you know, father-son um, racing, and and there are obviously some sons out there who have a go at it and don't have that natural ability. Um, do you, do you think there there is something inherently in certain people that may be passed down that makes them good at racing? And not necessarily something you know, it's something simple, but it could be something within their psyche or their their mentality that they've inherited that that makes them.
2: Better than the average man. I think I, I, that's a really tricky question, isn't it? If you really dive into the detail, yeah. but I think on the surface you could easily say, "Yeah, I mean, um, I think there is a natural thing that's in people when they're born. Um, it's like it's like that's one of the gifts they've got. Um, it doesn't mean to say that that means that gives you success because we've seen a lot of." very talented people make the wrong decisions and then not really have a career mm. um, where we've seen guys that perhaps don't have the natural ability as some of the others, but they work damn hard at it and, and they succeed, yeah. you know, so it's not just, Oh, here's your natural talent and off you go. It's going to be easy. You still have to work hard, be dedicated as you are You know, next because the, ne- the guy next to you wants to beat you or yeah. the girl next to you, he wants to beat you. You know, it's <laughs> just simple as that. So you know, you hear about people picking up a tennis racket or a cricket bat at an early age, and they've just got the eye and, and the rhythm, and, and it's just it's just there yeah. You know, it's how you harness it after that. So, um, when I started driving and driving as quickly and as stupidly as I did on the farm, you know, uh, driving fast was very comfortable.
1: Yeah, you know? uh, it's a, it's a fascinating yeah. thing to think about. I mean, there, it seems to be there's you know, you've either got to have some talent, you've either or and or you've got to be incredibly hardworking. Or you've got to have absolutely bottomless pits of cash, and it becomes yeah. a bit of a you know you do it as yeah. a hobby. And I could name several drivers that um, I, I've even worked with who who perhaps don't have that natural ability, but do have the benefit of of having millions of millions of pounds in the bank and can effectively buy sure. themselves into the sport. Um, but fast forward a little bit, and you're back in mm. back in the UK, 1989, racing against the likes of Alan McNish, who's someone you, you'd come up against. Throughout your career, in um, ladles,
2: yeah. No. Yeah, no, so first off in Boxelodis, of yeah.
1: British F three, um, you've beaten the likes of Michael Schumacher in the process. Things are going pretty well. Take us through that stage of your career. You, you, you must be thinking then things are really heading in a in a positive direction.
2: Yeah, I mean, 1989 in F three was, you know, a stellar year for me, having won the British F three championship and Macau in the same year. That gave me the super license to go to Formula One when I won Macau, which is what we were really gunning for. Um, And I got signed up to do Formula 3000 with Middlebridge. They had a good team, good car combination with the Lola Tickford um, engine. And I was, you know, I was pretty happy. You know, I was in a, in a really good place. Um, Done a great, you know, obviously we did a great job in F3 with Bowman and myself and, did what we needed to do there, and then I'm heading into Formula 3000. I thought, you know, what a couple of years in Formula 3000, and then you know, then hopefully I'll be knocking on the door for F1. A quick
0: interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, Road in Cars. Rodin are a bespoke, formula-style supercar manufacturer based in New Zealand. With their vehicle offering, this is the only place where you can truly live the F1 lifestyle. With the easy-to-run, easy-to-maintain, and even easier-to-drive Rodin FZ, you can live the dream of hunting down those final tenths of lap time whilst being fully supported by the team at Rodin, who will provide you with after-sale care, storage options, exclusive use of their incredible track in New Zealand, and, courtesy of Formula Racing team Tech. Grand Prix will run, set up, and maintain your vehicle on and off the track. The Rodin FZ is a vehicle like no other, perfect for any true car aficionado in search for that elite performance. To find out more, head to Rodin-cars.com.
2: But things changed after between Macau and the first race of the F3000 season. A lot changed. So Middlebridge bought Brabham Formula One team. Um, the week of Phoenix, which was round one of the nineteen ninety World Championship, that week, out of the blue, I get a call um, from the team saying, "How would you like to come over and do Phoenix and race the Brabham in the in the race?" You know, and I went, I thought about it, and I went, "You know what? No, thank you." I didn't feel I was ready. I didn't feel I was physically ready. Having driven an F three thousand, done a couple of tests in it, or Formula One was another huge step. I I just, you know, that week going to a new track, new team, new car, uh, I just didn't think I was ready, Uh, so I said no. Um, And then uh, we were ready to go for our first test with the new cars, and the team said, um, "Right, we're we're cancelling the three thousand program." I was going to be teammates with Damon Hill. He was out of a job. I was out of a job, and then they said, "We want you to be in Formula One." And then all of a sudden, I
1: was a Formula One driver. That's insane, isn't it? I mean, it's it's mad how things, how quickly things progressed for you at that stage. And it's been well publicised that you know Formula One didn't necessarily go to plan for you. But did you mm-hmm. did you enjoy? How do you look back at it now? I mean, amazing that you got there. Did you have a chance to enjoy that first stint in Formula One at all?
2: Um, I I would say it was much more of a struggle than I thought it would be. I I knew it would take time just to get up to speed. What I didn't realise at the time was how bad a state Brabham was in financially. Um, We had, you know, they, they ran out of money basically. And we had to, I didn't even know we were going to get to him like the next race until someone paid for the engines, you know, so I'd walk into the workshop and go, why are you guys still in? You know, "Well, we're waiting for someone to pay for the engines, you know, it's just like that every race, you know what I mean? Um, so it was, it was a pretty horrible environment like that, a lot of pressures and, you know, obviously I'm up against Stefano, who's, who's an experienced campaigner and very quick. Um, and I didn't realise till, till sort of years later. I'm talking to the mechanics that were back there in the time. They said, "Well, your problem, mate. You, you ended up getting his second-hand parts on the car. <laughs> so he was the so he was the number one, and I was essentially the number two. But I never really got the sort of same stuff as he did. Um, and at the time, I didn't really know. But sometimes we were like really close. But he was always just ahead of me. Um, and sometimes that was the difference between qualifying and not qualifying, you know. Um, so it was, a, it was a tough year. It, it helped me in some way, I guess, get the next drive, if you know what I mean, because I was a Jaguar a sports car driver and part of those decisions, you know, they look at your CV, they look at what you've done. And, you know, I, I, at least I had done Formula 1. And yes it wasn't successful but my career previous to that was yeah. so yeah. don't don't write me off too quickly and then got into got into the world sports car championship with jaguar the xjr 14 working with tom walkenshaw and ross brawn and, and the guys and you know um i ended up finishing first and second in my first world sports car event because i drove both cars started in one and finished in the other and <laughs> finished one too so it, it that's that launched my sports car career
1: yeah i've got I've got to um uh, I've got to ask about ross braun I mean he he's he's I guess a relatively private bloke you know we don't hear too much about him but everyone's heard of him what what was he like to work with i get I imagine he's a man with a very very big brain
2: yeah he was he was good because you know obviously I don't think many people probably realize but that was the last car he ever designed himself okay so he, he took a different role after that, um, where this one was his was his baby, uh, and the thing was phenomenal. It was so fast when I when I joined, it was it was ridiculously quick compared to everything else. And to be fair, Peugeot caught up. They built a new car, and all of a sudden, it was like we were struggling to beat them. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was a great great environment. It was you know going from the sort of chaos of Brabham to a well-structured, funded team that had had Ross at the helm there who was very quiet, allowed everyone to speak. But when he spoke, he spoke with authority, knowledge, uh, not trying to be overpowering because he allowed others to speak. And um, uh, he was just really easy and and good to work with um, from from my memories of those those times. So I've I've always had a good relationship with Ross every time we see each other we have a chat. Um and uh you know from that from that moment onwards you know we 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 knew each other and unfortunately I didn't never worked with him after that I would have liked to like a lot of drivers for sure but um you know he went on to Amazing things yeah. after that. You yeah, know, I know,
1: you yeah, incredible. And and when you look back at those Le Mans days, I mean, one of the greatest races on the planet. Uh, one of the probably one of the top three races on the planet. But you know, alongside things like the Indy Five Hundred and Monaco Grand Prix, it's an yeah. incredibly long and challenging experience. You have got to drive in the middle of the night and pitch black. It's all scary and quick and foggy and crazy weather systems. What what was it like emotionally taking part in a race as challenging as that?
2: Well, I, I don't think I ever had a more challenging Le Mans. I did 18 of them, and the most challenging was my first one. Uh, and that was because <clears throat> I was a third driver. I didn't really get enough time in practice to know learn the circuit as much as I would have liked, so I was still learning it. Uh, Jeff Lee started the event, ended up, it was absolutely bucking down with rain on the start. He got involved in an accident down the Molsan Strait on lap one, into the barriers, half the car missing. Comes back into the pits, long long time to repair it. So we're out of the race essentially <clears throat> at that point. Um, and then by the time I get in the car as the third driver, it's pitch black, it's thick fog, and it's bucketing down with rain. I couldn't see a thing. So there was no safety car. You know, I I went out of the pits. And I can always remember Jeff Lees when he came in during his stint I was listening to the radio and he just said, you guys are not paying me enough to be in this car. You know? <laughs> and when I went out there and went down the Mulsanne Strait for the first time, I didn't get out of third gear. I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't see where I was going. It was just these white lines. I didn't know if anyone's in front of me. Um, and, you know, I look back and I think, oh you, you wuss, you know. But it was just scary. I just didn't know. What, what the hell was going on. You know, you couldn't see. It was absolutely bucking with rain. I didn't know if it was going to aquaplane. Uh, it was thick fog and we're still racing. Yeah. You know, today's, well, that would be, you know, under safety car and it would be too dangerous. But back then it was like, you know, get on with it. Why are you slow? You yes. know, what's happening? You know, so um, uh, no one no one actually passed me on that first lap, which was interesting. And then the second lap, I just was flat out down the Mulsanne looking Looking at the, the white lines in front of me, because sitting in the crown in the middle, and then waiting for a marker on the left to show me where I could start to break. But, it, that's so uh, dangerous,
1: though, isn't it? I mean, it, you, you yeah. flat out following a white line—you can't see anything. If if a car has had a mechanical fault in front of you, you're a goner. Like there, there is no coming yeah. back from that. It's just insane. Yeah. What was it like when you when you when you cross the line and you get your first win in Le Mans? That must be one of the highlights of your
2: career. Yeah, I mean. Um, the second year I went back, so that's uh, – my first one was 92. So 93 was the Jaguar XJ220. And, um, you yeah, know, we, we were having a good battle with Hans Stuck in, in the Porsche, and they they ended up uh, crashing, I think. So that was the end of them. So it was up to us to really to get to the end. And um, during that during that race, I actually had a, a, a fuel leak inside the, the the car oh my God. and uh i just got on the radio i said uh, my feet are slipping and i've got a real strong smell of fuel you know and they said well can you get to the end of the stint and i was i was getting a headache and everything so i came in uh after a few laps and they they, they filled up with fuel and then they said right we found the leak could you would you mind going doing a few more laps so we can figure out what to do with it whether we need to change the tank or not well, I told them to F off and I said, you change the tank, because I am not going out. Yeah. And uh, but, okay. So they changed the tank and off we went. Anyway, we ended up winning the race with DC and John Nelson. And um, you know, which was great. My brother Jeff had won the race overall for Peugeot. So it was a huge family affair on the day. You know, it was only later on we got disqualified because it was under yeah. appeal anyway. Uh, while we raised, um, which is a which was a shame because it, you know on track it was a it, it was a great challenge for us to try and get to the front and keep there and you know with the other cars around and you just had to have a few problems and and you know you were done. So that was my first experience of standing on the podium at Le Mans, which is something you'll never forget. Yeah, yet.
1: yeah. I mean, despite the, the the disqualification, you still had that experience of standing on the podium at Le Mans in front of all the fans. You know, yeah, so. You know, the, yeah, my dad
2: was there, and he, yeah. he, you know, he, he was there with two of his sons and just won the Mon. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah.
1: yeah, amazing. And, and just fast-forwarding, and then a little bit more. Um, following a second stint in Formula One, you did some British Touring Car Championships back into Le Mans, had some more success. But um, before we come on to more uh, recent history, I'm I'm keen to get your your thoughts on Formula One now. Um, and obviously Liberty Media came in a few years ago changed things up a little bit and they've mixed things up we've got some new regulations coming in we've got a great driver battle what, what's your take on Formula 1 now do you, do, you, do you like it do you look back at the old days and think I liked it better then what, what's your take on um, on the current
2: racing um, I, I would say that uh, yeah I guess I'm, I'm probably one of those people that look back and think the racing back then was quite raw the tracks were dangerous. Um, there was a different vibe in the paddock as such. Um, today's Formula One is very different. Um, the cars are technically just amazing. They really are uh, from a performance point of view. Uh, the drivers seem to get younger and younger. You know, they're hardly out of nappies and they're driving quickly on a Formula One car can win a world championship. I mean, I went into Formula One when I was... 24, and I was the second youngest driver on the grid. I think the average was over 30. You know what I mean? It was very different to today's world. Um, I think the evolution of the way the cars have gone and the drivers, in terms of their performances, the way they they go about it, their fitness, everything—it's just everything just goes up and up and up in level. So that's impressive to to watch from the outside. And and of course, it's always more interesting when you've got a bit of a battle on track. Um, you know, the, the Lewis Mack show that we've we've seen building up over the last few years to this kind of moment is is fascinating. And it's drawn a lot of people in. I think Liberty coming in at the time that they did, we've, everyone was probably a bit unsure to begin with, but if you look fast forward to where they are now, you know, um, it, I, I kind of feel they came in at the right time with the right vision, Um the fans have got more connected, more involved. Uh, Obviously social media has played a big role in that. They didn't have it in my day, but um, certainly I think a lot of positives are coming out of Formula One and with the new regulations and cost cap and things like that, it starts to make a bit more sense as well from from a, let's say if you're a business and you're looking at Formula One as a business, it's starting to make a little bit more sense now as well. So I think the future looks pretty good for Formula One, to be fair.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think the first couple of years of of Liberty's reign, I think there was still a lot of... There's a lot of Formula One bashing going on, and gradually over the the, year, the last few years, it seems to have tailed off. I and mean, I think people are actually mm. injured, falling back in love with the sport again. I think a lot of people yeah. fell out of love with it, and it, and it became absolutely. I think,
2: and I would put myself in that category as well. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. No, agreed. Well, let, let's talk. Um, let's shift focus and talk about um, Brabham Automotive. Um, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know how many years ago it was. It was put before. The BT sixty two before anything, before any wheels were made, any bits and pieces were created. I was in a room with you in, um, I think it was London Wall in a in an office of some investment firm, and and you were looking for funds to to, to get going with Brabham Automotive and, and get going with the BT uh, sixty two. And the meeting we had, I can't remember the, the chap I was dealing with but we we talked around it can we help with any fundraising and stuff and it came to nothing but it's funny that we sit here now and during that period of time that what you've gone on to achieve is is incredible you've got the project off the ground you've got a car that (laughs) is um available um as a track car but it's also going into racing it it seems to have happened Pretty quickly, for those that don't know, tell us a little bit of the backstory behind Brabham Automotive and the BT62.
2: Yeah, sure. Thanks. I mean, um, if I go back a little bit further, it it really started when I I got to age 40 and I'm thinking, what am I going to do when I'm 50? Um, Because I didn't feel like, um, well, I felt like I needed something and I felt that, we got an iconic racing name. How do I, how do I, what do we do with that? You know, we not, we weren't doing anything with it. So I started to think way ahead down the road and, and try and figure out how do I take an iconic racing name and turn it into a brand, you know? So um, the two are quite different. So uh, I ended up going through the legal court case to get the name back. That took seven years. Uh, started with a clean sheet of paper. Um, I looked at the kind of virgin model. You know, so you've got the brand, and you've got the brand is used as an accelerator to market for different projects. You know, so if you look at Virgin Train, Virgin Money, Virgin this, Virgin that, uh, I thought, could I do the similar model to to that for Brabham? You know, so it was about then finding the right partners, the right investors for a project that would get the the name back out there, and uh, a mutual friend of. Well, mine and, and the investors that invested in Brabham Automotive, Fusion Capital out of Adelaide, uh, a mutual contact said, "Look, you guys should meet." So we met up, um, and fast forward a couple of years, we created Brabham Automotive and the BT62, uh, which we took to market at Australia House in um, May of May second of uh, two thousand eighteen, and then um, you know people. Got a chance to drive the car. They really loved it. All the journalists raved about it. <clears throat> People said, couldn't race it? Can we put it on the road? So within the, the, the only, we're only building 70 of the BT62s. Uh, and it is the ultimate track car originally. You know, it's un, it's it's 1,200 kilos downforce. It's under a tonne in weight, 700 horsepower, uh, ABS tr- um, traction control and carbon brakes, you know. So the, the ultimate game is to break the lap record at, Bathurst, which we which we achieved, um, and now we've got obviously Paul Bailey's been racing one, and we'll race one next year uh, in GT Cup. Um, so that's because people said, can we race them? So it's like, well, okay, we looked at that, and also, can we put them on the road? So the BT62R is a road compliant conversion of the BT62. Um, so we've got customers for those, and one the first one went to New Zealand. And it's just going through the registration process at the moment. Um, and there's one coming to Europe. There's more in Australia. So that's all starting to build. And then we came up with the BT 63 GT2 car, which we raced, which I raced down um, a couple of months ago at Paul Ricard for the SRO Fanatec GT2 European Series. So uh, that's the kind of next phase for us. It's more, let's say, racing dedicated than, let say, the, the 62. And uh, you know we've got some exciting plans uh, that we're working on for uh, for next year and beyond around that that particular project. Now, ultimately, we want to get to Le Mans and race a Brabham at Le Mans. Uh, but I always say to people that's our vision. Yeah. We have to build the business uh, to the point where we're able to support a program like that. And as you know, they're they're big, expensive programs. And a lot of the big manufacturers are able to do it. Smaller ones, it's a bit harder. But it uh, doesn't mean to say we're not going to achieve it. So uh, we're building the business up. That goal getting closer as we as we move along. And uh, it's exciting times, really. Um, very excited for me to be part of that project and also to be able to create something that carries the Brabham name into the future and creates the next chapter and rebuilds a house that my my father built, in a sense. Yeah,
1: Yeah. very cool. And and, it would be so amazing for that to almost go full circle and you have a Brabham (laughs) car potentially driven by another Brabham crossing the line at Le Mans. I mean, absolutely fantastic stuff. Many congratulations yeah. for all of that. And you, and you mentioned Thank keeping you. that Brabham name going. And there are some younger Brabhams doing all right on racetrack. Uh, are you pleased that your your son, I think your nephew, races as well? Are you pleased yeah. that they're going in this direction? Or are you a bit like your dad was with you
2: and rolling your eyes, thinking, oh, Christ, here we go again? Uh, you know, it's kind of funny with my son. I mean, honestly, Jeff's... Boy uh, Matthew had started a lot earlier than when Sam did. So uh, but with Sam, he he started to get a bit of an interest in in wanting to do something at age 15, 14, 15. And I I found myself doing similar things to what my dad did with me, <laughs> which kind of scared me a little bit. It was like, really? Because <laughs> at first at first he'd say it, and I and and I I guess I didn't take it that seriously. You know, a bit like my dad did with me. Uh, it's not something I consciously did. It was just kind of how it happened. Um, and I think it was life's way of saying, well, you know, you need to open your eyes a bit on what happened with your dad and you. And now you're seeing it through the the, the mirror of you and your son, you know. And um, uh, I remember driving, flying to America because I was busy racing in America at that time with American Le Mans series. And I remember looking out the window, which I loved doing when I was flying over there because, you know, lots of creative things come to your head. And and that voice said, don't be an idiot. Just, you know, you are being a prick. Just get get him in a go-kart. And so when I came back, we did. And um, so he ended up doing go-karting, Formula Ford, you know, Porsche Carrera Carp, and then went to Australia for a visit and hasn't come back after two and a half years. So he's... Unfortunately, COVID down there scuppered a, a racing project for him. Um, and now he's building that back up and, and wants to race in, in, in Australia. Um, and you've got Matthew racing in America. Um, he's done a few tests in an Indy Lights program. So hopefully he can get in and, and do a season of that again, just to get kickstart his career in single seaters yeah. and get to IndyCar. I mean, I'd love to see, you know, both of them in, in, a, in a brabham racing at the Mall. You know, amazing. and and standing on the podium, that that would that would be amazing because you know my dad started that at Le Mans by winning the first ever ever Grand Prix at at, um, at Le Mans, the French Grand Prix in 1967, and then my brother and I have won Le Mans, and uh, so to have a Brabham. Car on track, winning Le Mans with Brabham's in it—it'd it, be fairy tale story, it you know. And, that, and, and that's the dream. That's, that's what we're uh,
1: That would finish everybody off. If uh, anyone that knows, <laughs> yeah. anyone that, that knows motorsport, I think that would—if um, you don't shed a tear, then you are literally dead inside. Um, yeah. So now you're obviously a, a very quick racing driver. You've you've become a businessman. Was you, well, was was. <laughs> was a very quick racing driver. You have become a businessman. You're very good at that. You know, things were heading in a good direction. Um, what are you crap at what are you absolutely
2: useless at oh god everything else <laughs> Oh, um, well I mean look you know there's, there's lots of things that you could say okay I'm okay at but there's lots of things that you know it's just not my bag you know I'm not good at um, I couldn't say anything too much I mean to be fair when I first started cooking I was a crap person at cooking but I actually quite enjoy it now, and I'm getting better at it. My wife's a good cook, and my son uh, Finn, who's 21, is an outstanding cook. You know, so when when he's when he's at home and I'm cooking, I feel massively under pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and let's flip that on
1: its head. Any hidden talents? Anything that you're particularly good at outside of your racing and uh, on track exploits?
2: Um, I think I, if I go back to like the conversation I had. Earlier, when when I was at school and I played a lot of sport, um, I, I, I can pick up sporty stuff really quickly, um, and I think that's all that's been good for me going on. You know, um, you know, I like playing golf, but I don't I don't play enough to be good at it. But um, an example, I guess, is I, I I think I was living next door to the 1991 European champion. Uh, a guy called Jeff Hawks, I think his name was. And he asked me to do a golfing uh, charity match. And uh, I said, well, you give me some lessons, you know, because I was okay at golf, but pretty average, you know, shooting high 90s, that kind of thing. He gave me four lessons and we played together. And after the first nine holes, uh, we were both on four over par. So it, with a bit of guidance and stuff you know i can pick things up quite yeah. naturally so um that's kind of that's where i would say I, I was always born with something to be able to do that
1: yeah fantastic now that we have a final three questions that we ask all of our guests um and they throw up a myriad of different answers and these are brought to us by our friends at Roden cars the first one what's got you excited at this very moment
2: I think, um, you know, you, you, you try and think, oh, what could that be? But it's that first thing that kind of comes to your head. And I, I kind of feel that all the work that I've done in the background over the last 16 years to get, let's say, the Brubham brand to where we are today with Brubham Automotive, we've got some other things that we're working on in the background and you can start to see light at the end of the tunnel in terms of where, where it's all headed. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting it's, it's not been easy to get to where we are today. You know, the court case and, you know, starting an automotive company from scratch is not easy. Um, a lot of challenges, uh, but we keep hitting the milestones, although a little bit further down the road than we probably first thought. COVID didn't help, but also just unrealistic timing. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it, it, it's coming together. And, and for someone like myself, you know, you say, "Well, you're good at business." I'm still learning about business. To be fair, um, I, I find I find if I go into the when I went looking for money and talking to people in a world that I—it's a language I didn't understand. It was a bit of a shock. You know what I mean? It was like, "Well, what's all this about?" Because that's not how we act or behave or talk in racing. I went into very different worlds that I had to learn very quickly. Um, and, uh, it, that was very challenging, you know? Um, so I'm still, I'm still learning. I like to keep to certain principles, which is if it doesn't make sense, why, you know? Um, and that's kept me kind of on a, on an even keel as, as such as I've, as I've learned and, and gone along, because I kind of feel a lot of people lose sight, common sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm a kind of common sense person, you know? So, um, You know, if I, if I, if you were to, if I was to go back when I was a kid and said, this is what you've done in your life, I I just forget it. You know, it's just, there's no way, you know, so I look at that journey and yeah, it's great. And I feel like I've achieved a lot, but I still feel there's more to to, to go. There's still more to do. Um, And that's the bit I'm excited about is what's, what's next.
1: And and had you not gone gone down this path, um, if you had never found racing, what would you be doing right now?
2: I guess it would have been farming.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Whether I liked it or not, it just kind of, well, that's how it would have been, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, finally, what are you scared of?
2: That's a really, really good question, isn't it? Um, the, fear, the fear is, what do they say fear is? False expectations appearing real. You know, it's a good a good statement and it's, and I think it's easy to have fears about the unknown uh, and the risks that you've got to take into the unknown. Um, And I, I, when I look back and I think I was quite a conservative person when I was racing in a sense and going through the court case was a massive challenge for me personally, uh, financially and emotionally. Um, uh, But that broke that mold a little bit. Where I started to take more risk, I started to push myself a bit more in areas that I perhaps wouldn't have done. So for me, it was it was about breaking those barriers, internal fear barriers, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it's, it's a. I think it's a really interesting question. It's a very simple question, but it's. I, I think you can tell a lot about an individual about their answer because some people would. I mean, we've asked that question to over a hundred people now on this podcast, and some people just go ah, spiders. You think okay, fair enough. You know, fine. Yeah. Others, people like uh, like Freddie Hunt, for example, couldn't answer. It choked him up because he, he yeah. we'd obviously talked about his father a little bit, and it, he just he was like, "I don't think I can talk about it." So he left it. And others went oh. quite deep into it, and it throws up all sorts of, yeah. uh, of fascinating answers. Uh, but that, yeah, is- I
2: mean, if if you're talking very generic, what are you scared of from an animal point of view? Yeah, it would be a snake.
1: Yeah, well, I, hate uh, snakes. I mean, and
2: I lived on a farm and I, I had snakes going between my legs. Yeah, I've had snakes nearly bite me and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, from that side, it's snakes. But I think it's a, in a, a, a deeper sense, it's it's kind of those inner little battles you have with yourself to, yeah. to progress. Yeah, agreed.
1: Well, yeah. Um, Listen, we've kept you for long enough, um, but fascinating story um, that there, there's so much that we didn't talk about. You know, you've done an awful lot in your career. Um, but best of luck with um, Brabham Automotive. Best of luck with the car um, and, and future iterations of that car and all the racing that's to come. Um, David yep. Brabham, thank you for joining us on the Motormouth podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having me, Tim. Um, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Pleasure.
0: Before you go, one final reminder to check out Rodin cars. Forget a one-off experience. With Rodin and the Rodin FZ, you can become and live the life of an elite performance driver. With your very own Rodin FZ, you'll be able to drive a truly remarkable supercar, hunt down lap time and search for ultimate performance. A solo cockpit, but never alone. With Rodin's incredible after-sale partnership, you'll be looked after on and off track with an official Formula Racing team running and maintaining your vehicle. And as an exclusive owner of a Rodin car, you'll get exclusive access to their circuit in New Zealand. So, what are you waiting for? To find out how you can own the F1 lifestyle, find the perfect racing line, enjoy the thrill of a roaring engine, and experience the purity of driving, visit rodin-cars.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth Podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials: Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social programs. Profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy we're also proud to be supporting the brain tumor charity too so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the Motormouth mouth podcast